Okay, y'all. As I um, look at our topic in the bulletin, my heart flutters just a tad. Uh, let's do this. We are um, we are going to take a brief time out from uh, Job. We ended Job at Job 19. That is the pivotal part of Job. That's the the hinge by which the whole book turns. Uh, everything's building up to Job 19. Now everything's going to flow from Job 19, and we'll be marching on our way to that climactic part of the book where Job finally gets what he's been desiring, finally gets what he's been craving. He actually gets a hearing from God. And that I can't wait to get to, but that's going to be a little farther down the road. We'll pick that up in a couple of weeks. Today, we're going to do something a little different for about four weeks. Whilst people are still getting back in town and, uh, and in this particular life of the church. Here's how I want to begin. Uh, Nora Dorso of Lindhurst, New York, wrote about her son, Joe. When he was turning six years old, she and her husband got together and decided it was time for Joe to ditch the Winnie the Pooh briefs and go for something a little more studly. So they got him incredible Hulk briefs. They laid the package on his bed. He comes running into his bed, rips open the passage, sees the incredible Hulk briefs. Triumphantly, he exclaims, finally, adult underwear. (laughs) Todd Gibson, I was thinking of you, baby. Um... For many of you that that know me and have been in this church and know the leadership of this church, you might feel the same way with this topic. Finally, an adult conversation about money. Uh, Jim, lock the door, please, right now. Um, Here's the first, what we're going to do in our, we're going to have, we're going to have an adult conversation about money and we're going to have a preliminary conversation. Uh, dialogue right now before we even get into the text. And the first preliminary dialogue, the first topic would be kind of the elephant in the room, wouldn't it? I mean, Jeff, you've never taught on money. You've never preached on money. What's, What's going on? I've been preaching for about 12 years and I have never preached or taught on the topic of money in those 12 years. So the obvious question is, uh, why haven't you, right? That's the first question. And the answer, the honest answer from myself and from the leadership of the church, the answer, the honest answer is, we just haven't been comfortable with the idea. We've been uncomfortable with this topic. That's the honest answer. Why? Um, I have viewed, and I think all of us would say we probably have viewed uh, preaching about money as a form of spiritual whining. <laughs> you know, if, if the budget's not being met, whine spiritually about money. If we're not able to develop and grow and go forward in certain ministries, whine, spiritually whine about money. You get the point? I have never personally never wanted to be that guy, that preacher, uh, that one who whines, that one who manipulates, that one who guilt to give his congregation or his people. Never wanted to do that. Uh, so then the second question in our honest dialogue here, our adult conversation about money is, well, what's changed then? You know, why now? Why talk about money now? Uh, and here's the answer to that. Uh, our understanding, the leadership of the church, mine included, our understanding of money and our relationship to money 
has changed. We used to think, I used to think, money's just about money, right? And if it's just about money, then the first thing you got to do is get your tide down. Next thing you got to do is get your budget under control. The next thing you got to do is we got to start learning to take steps to sacrificially give. End of story. Good stuff, right? But in the Bible and in real life, money is never just about money. It's about worship. It's about treasures in the heart. The trusts of the heart. It's about control and power and significance and status. It's about beauty and bounty. It's about freedom and fullness. It's about appearances. It's about a lot of things than just money. So, um, because that's the case, uh, money moves in the realm uh, that's cosmic. Money moves in the realm of the battleground of the gods. Money moves in the realm of the clash of the titans. Money moves in the cosmic spaces and places of the universe and the human heart. And because that's so, we've got to talk about it. Last preliminary thought in our adult conversation about money. Our last preliminary thought is this. Money is the most talked about daily life topic in the Bible. Did you know that? I mean, when you get down to the nitty gritty internal grind of life, what in the stuff of your real life is most talked about in the scriptures and the most talked about topic is money. 10 to 20 times more than sex. So you got to ask yourself, why does money have such a visible topic? In the scriptures, why is that the case? I mean, we're talking about daily life kind of stuff, real life kind of stuff. Why does money have that kind of visibility? Why does it? And here's the answer. Because money is the last place we look to to see if we have a problem with it. Money is the last place in our lives we think we have a problem with. Um... Our default position is usually, I don't have a problem with money. Now, Jim, my neighbor, with the Hummer limo, oh, yeah, he's got a problem. I have a Honda. Thank you. Right? That's our default position. One pastor puts it this way. I absolutely love this. No one committing adultery says, what are you doing here? You're not my wife. You know when you're committing adultery. But money is different. We are always the last people to know we're greedy. We're always the last people to know we spend too much on ourselves. We're the last people to know we're not generous. that we try to use money to control our lives and we use it for our agendas and that we desperately need it. 
So here's the plan. The plan is we're going we're gonna to look at four places in Scripture that talk about money. And our goal is to listen. Our goal is just to listen. I don't want us to sit here and argue with what I'm saying. I don't want you to sit here, run to your proof text and say, "Uh uh-uh, what about this text? I want us, if we can, just to listen. Maybe a new and a fresh in a new way. Maybe we'll hear something new for the first time. That's our goal. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to start from the Old Testament. We're going to start from what my dear friend Lou Best calls the only Italian prophet in the Bible, Malachi. So we're going to hear from Malachi. We're going to hear from him, and then we're going to move to Paul. And when we get to Paul, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And then we're going to hear from Jesus, and we're going to hear two sermons from Jesus. And by that time, we'll get right back into Job, okay? So if you're able, I would like for you to stand, and we're going to begin our adult conversation on money, a four-week series on money in the gospel. Let's start with chapter 3. Verses 1 through 4, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way for me, before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But I want you, now we read 2 through 4, I want you to see what starts to happen here. It'll save me in in the next part of the sermon. Watch the cleansing, the cataclysmic events that take place when the Lord goes to his temple. Watch how things get overturned. All right. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Drop down to eight. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? Answer, in your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. The storehouse is the treasure house in the temple. That there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down so much blessing on you until there is no more need. Now let's jump down to chapter 4. For behold, again, this cataclysmic cleansing, overturning of things. The day is coming, burning like an oven, when all arrogant and all evil doers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will not leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the sole of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh God, we ask that you would um, you would speak, and we ask that you would give us ears to hear in our heart and eyes to see in our heart. 
that you would give what Paul prays for, having the eyes of our heart enlightened to behold him. I pray, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit, that he would enable us to do so. And where the spirit is, there's power. And where the spirit is, there's life. All the power and all the life that Jesus accomplished. And I pray this in his name. Amen. All right, nothing is known about the personal life of Malachi. All right, he's the invisible man. He's the invisible prophet. Nobody knows anything about him. Uh, he's the last prophet in the Old Testament. And what we're, what's happening is, is that he's the last prophet before in this, test, in this book is announced another prophet that's coming. But this other prophet that's coming is kind of a, a different kind of prophet. We're going to know him as John the Baptist. But John the Baptist is in a very unique situation because John the Baptist has one leg in the Old Testament. Testament or old covenant, and he has one leg into the new, and he's a bridge between the old and the new. He's a bridge between the old era and epic and age of redemption, the plan of redemption, and the new one. So, what we have in the very beginning of this passage is we get a sneak preview of this guy that has his foot in the old and in the new. We get that in 3 1 1. Behold, I send a messenger, right? Now, in 4, 5, behold, I will send a messenger. I will send you Elijah the prophet. Well, Elijah's already come. And that's why people, when John the Baptist came, were calling, are you Elijah come from the dead? Right? Um, John the Baptist is the national anthem before the big game. When the national anthem starts being sung, the reason why everyone in the stands is about ready to begin And so when we get to Malachi, what we have is we are in an interesting place in the story of redemption. He's the last, this book, that's announcing the coming of another who will start singing the national anthem and then the game really begins, right? Now the layout of Malachi, I need to give you a little orientation to the book. We can't just drop right into this book. The layout's very interesting. The layout is of such is that you remember in the Old Testament, you have all these, um, at the end of the Old Testament, these weird names for prophets, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Habakkuk, Malachi, you know, these names. What I want you to remember about these names is these are a new breed of prophets. These are not like the old prophets. These are not like the Elijahs and the Elishas. These are a new breed of prophets. They're different Not just that their names are different and weird, but they are in a different place in the story of redemption, okay? Now, what we're having, what's taking place here in these new breed of prophets like Malachi, I'm going to have a hard time not going back to Malachi, Malachi, what's happening here is that these all have similar structures, though. They have a structure of speeches or sermons. It's kind of like if you were, I mean, the old school way, and I still have the old school way. You go into my office and you grab the, the filing cabinet and you pull out all these four files that are just monsters. And you got rows after rows of sermons. Well, today, you know, you go into your iBook, you know, your MacBook Pro, and you hit your little folder. And now you have all your, your stuff there. That's the way these prophets are. They are a collection of sermons. Uh, and so Luther says it's such a weird structure in such a weird way. And there's such weird people. He calls them actually weird. He says they have a queer way of talking. (laughs) 
like people who instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, ramble off from one thing to the next so that you cannot make head or tail of them or see what they're getting at. This gives great encouragement to every preacher who's ever preached. The other thing we need to know about Malachi is we need to know the human heart in that place. What was the human condition like? You know, what's the historical soil? What are the people like? What, what kind of lives are they living and what are they expecting and what's going on with them? Here it is. You ready? The human condition in Malachi is disappointment. Life is not going the way they thought. The way they wanted. The way they expected. The dominant emotion, if you were there and you were living in that day, this is what you'd be feeling. You'd be walking around like everybody else saying, is that it? This can't be it. This is not the life we expected. Because here's what's happened. 70 years, Israel's been out of the land and now they're back. And not only that, the seismic epicenter of the whole cosmos and universe has just been rebuilt called the temple. And the expectations of change in all of Israel at this time is just astronomically off the charts. A national spiritual revival is expected. Uh, An inbreaking of God with beauty and bounty and blessing that's off the charts. A sense in which Worship will change corporately and worship in the hearts will change. It's a, it's a time where they actually believe that they're going to be a major player on the world stage again, that there's going to be national uh, Israelite uh, status and a place in the world and significance. It's also a time in which the people, there's a, there's a giant expectation that lives are going to change. Did you catch that at the end? At the very end of the book? The expectation is, man, fathers and sons are actually going to have a good relationship again. Marriages are going to be better. Families are going to be better. You know, the community is actually going to be deeper, and there's actually going to be a one anotherness with God's people, and there'll be a sense in which we love and forgive and bear with one another and are on the same team. And there's a sense in which the people are, are believing and expecting that this God-centered vision will come saturating and soaking the whole community in such a way that there will be a sense in which they live for something bigger than themselves and they actually will be engaged in ministry and, and being used in their community, but also in the world stage again, right? But then the spiritual engine of the universe and the cosmos is rebuilt And nothing happens. No national revival. Is this it? This can't be it. The last thing we expected. Is God no longer on the move in Israel? And then Malachi comes in and he gives us the point, the big idea of money in his book. And are you ready for it? Here it is. When God loses power 
in your life. Money gains power in your life. Let's unpack that, shall we? Let's get going here. All right, now watch how he does unpack it. Watch how he shows this power shift that goes from God to money. He describes it in verse 8. Will man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed God? And the answer is in your tithes and your contributions. This is the blunt assessment that makes all of us go, yikes. Israel's robbing God. Israel's stealing from God. How? By withholding their tithes and their contributions. In other words, in the Mosaic law, the law, the the requirement, the standard at that time of giving was out of all your yearly wealth and your yearly income, you take 10% of that and it goes to the temple treasure storehouse. It goes to God and his purposes and his use. And then there's contributions that can be made and these are generous and giving and above and beyond your 10% that you, you give to the temple and to God. In other words, there's, there's a biblical proportion of giving with biblical joy that's supposed to accompany it that's not happening in Israel. And God says, you're, you're robbing me, you're stealing from me. And if you're like me, you're thinking just as I'm thinking, what? Come on. Robbing God? Stealing from God? Man, I work hard for my money. I earn it. I get up at the crack of dawn and I go to bed late. I get emotionally wiped out. I'd rather get, I'd rather clock in my hours. I earn this. I deserve this. This is my stuff. How does not giving 10% of it rob God or steal God, steal from God? How can that be true? Keller answers it this way. He says, everything we are and everything we have, including our abilities, our talents, our gifts, and our personalities, and including our opportunities, being born in the United States instead of being born in the Sudan. All comes from God. God is the great creator and owner of everything. All that we are. All that we have. And we owe him thanks. I mean, why do you thank somebody? You ever thought about that? If you come up to me and you say, thank you, Jeff, I, I expect and you would expect that there'd be a reason why you're thanking me. Thank you for what you did. Thank you for what you've done. Thanking God is a deep, deep, deep awareness that everything you are and everything you have, he has given you. He's done it. It's his. Thank you. Keller goes on to say this, which is absolutely, when I read it, I fell out of my chair, almost literally. God doesn't give up ownership of something just because he gives it to you. Wow. Athletic talent? Uh Uh-huh. Music ability? Mm Mm-hmm. 
Physical beauty? Mm-hmm. A gift with money? Mm-hmm. A real quick mind? Mm-hmm. A slow mind? Mm-hmm. A mind like me? Mm-hmm. God created the world as an interdependent, interwoven place of shalom. If we deny the gift nature of what we have, we unravel God's creation. We rob God. This is beyond stinginess, end quote. Now, if we stop here and money's just money, oh, the application's easy, right? Gosh, get your tithe in order. (laughs) Nobody wants to rob God. That's not a good thing. It's not a good thing to walk into God's house, unbolt the door, have a mask on, and pillage from God's house. That's a pretty scary proposition. Nobody wants that. Let's start tithing. If money's just money, get your tithe down, right? Start budgeting better, right? Start taking some steps with your contributions to learn to sacrificially give, right? If money's just money, that's the application. Let's go home. But Malachi says money is more than money. Money is a power. Why did Israel not give their tithes and offerings or their tithes and contributions to God? Why did they withhold their money? Why did they cling to their money? Why were they greedy? Why were they spending too much on themselves? Why were they not generous? Why were they trying to use their money to control their life? Why did they so desperately need money? Here's the answer. Because money was exercising power over them. Uh, Commentators point out that Malachi has a very unique stylistic um, emphasis. In other words, Malachi loves to use repetition. It loves to use vocabulary that's the same throughout the book. It loves to use ideas and concepts in parallel phraseologies and repetition. And the number one repetition of the book of Malachi, the number one idea that's repeated is the temple that was just rebuilt. The temple is the place of worship. The temple is the place of awe. The temple is the place of joy. The temple is the place of bounty and beauty and blessing. The temple is the place of cosmic control and strength and power. The temple is the place of redemption and deliverance and favor with God. The temple is the place of freedom and fullness. The garden writ small. And what God is saying in verse 8 and 9 is that you have turned money into your temple. You've replaced the temple with money. You've replaced me with money. And so now you serve money, not me. When God loses power in our lives, money gains power in our lives. All right, there are two immediate implications that we've got to resolve before we go any further and then we wrap this thing up. 
Um, is the Old Testament tithe the mandatory standard requirement for the New Testament believer? We've got to resolve that, don't we? Is it? I mean, we're, we're trying to think about giving. We don't want to rob God. What do we do? What's the requirement? What, what, do we, what is the responsibility in our role as God's people, right? Well, the, the tithe is only mentioned one place in the Bible, and it's by Jesus in Luke 8. Luke 11, this is what Jesus says, but woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Do you see what he's saying? Jesus is saying, these you ought to have done. You ought to have tithed. Of course. It's right to tithe. So he affirms the tithe. But notice what he goes on to say. But there's something even much more beyond that. It's called giving to love and justice. Keller again is helpful here. He says this. He says, look, we are not supposed to see the tithe as a legalistic minimum, but as the starting point to giving. That's so good. In other words, the tithe is the starting point to giving. But the standard or the the measurement of giving today in the New Testament, in the era in which Jesus has come, not in the era in which Jesus was shadowed, but in the era in which Jesus is the substance, not in the era of anticipation, but in the era of fulfillment. In that era, it's love and justice. And there's no measurement there. So in other words, when we start thinking about giving, what we don't want to be doing is grabbing a calculator. We want to grab love and justice. Second implication is this. Look at verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, place in the temple. There may be food in my house, and thereby put me in the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down blessing upon you till there's no need. In other words, here's the point. The tithe is a way to test ourselves. The tithe is a great way to test, reveal what's in our hearts. Does money or God have more power over us. That's the test. And the tithe is the test. Now that we all feel absolutely horrible, uh, what do you do when you fail that test? What do you do when you realize money has more power over me more power of beauty, more power of worship, more power of awe, more power of significance, more power of blessing, more power of bounty, more, more power of control, more power of significance, more power of status, more power of protection. What do you do? You could just do it. In other words, you could just say, doggone it. Give me the check. <laughs> you could just do it, right? Just do it. Now, here's the point. You can make yourself tithe. You can begin at the starting point of giving and make yourself tithe. But here's what I want to say to you. You can change your behavior 
but that will not change your heart. At the end of the month, you are still going to feel anxious and scared while you write that check. You're still going to struggle with being a grumpy rather than a cheerful giver. You're still going to think things like, well, I've done my end of the deal. Now God better bless me. He owes it to me now. You're still going to feel good because you feel like you've done your part. You've fulfilled your role. You've met the standard. You feel okay. Just doing it will not break money's power over you. So here's the deal. There's only one power in this passage that breaks the power of money over us. There's only one power in all the universe that can break the power of money over us. Did you see it in the text? Did you see it? Here's the answer. The better temple. The better worship. The better treasure. The better wealth. The better riches. The better security. The better control. The better power. The better significance. The better freedom and the better fullness. Malachi 3, 1 through 4. Remember I told you to note the cataclysmic upheaval that was taking place in worship, in hearts, and in lives at the day of the Lord. When the Lord showed up to the temple, purification of worship, of treasures, of the temple took place. 400 years after Malachi, the whole world heard, Oh, say can you? John the Baptist showed up. The game is about to begin. The first thing Jesus did when John the Baptist sung the national anthem is he went into the temple of Malachi. And he flipped over tables. And he even grabbed a whip, which scares the daylights out of all of us. And he drove the buyers and sellers of God's mercy and God's grace and God's favor out of the temple. He cleansed it. He cleansed worship. He made a new temple. It was so staggering, the religious leaders went up to him, they got in his face, and they go, tell us about what right you do this now. And this is what he said. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. And they go, you've got to be kidding me! 46 years to do this! And the narrator comes in because he knows everyone's scared and he knows the reader's scared. And he says, by this, he was speaking of the temple of his body. <laughs> now watch what happens to the disciples here. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed. Don't miss that. The moment the disciples believed Jesus was the temple, change occurred. 
cleansing occurred, overturning of buying and selling God's favor and performance and ways of relating to God and ways of relating to money and ways of relating to sex and ways of relating to people and ways of relating to pain and suffering got turned upside down and driven out. And in its place, the true temple, the life, the death, the resurrection, the body of Jesus, the beauty, the bounty, the blessing, the significance, the security, the freedom, the fullness, everything. Put me to the test, verse 10, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down so much blessing on you till there is no more need. The good shepherd in Psalm 23 would say, no more lack. So you lack nothing. Jesus willingly destroyed his body, the true temple, because he wanted to open the windows of heaven and pour out so much blessing upon you that you in your soul would have no more need. He wanted to make you rich. He wanted to make you wealthy beyond what money can give you. When God gains power in our lives, money loses power in our lives. 